everybody! Welcome to another episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Zach. And I'm Seth. And we're the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's right. We are the Classic Gaming Brothers. We are. We are, we are. I want to thank Terciops Truncatus Studios for being on our show this past Wednesday for our Indie Dev Lounge. They talked about their game, The Day We Fought Space. So be sure to check out that episode if you haven't yet and yes. give them some support. They're a, they're a great studio. It was really good getting to talk to them. Yes, and it is, in fact, right below this episode. Anyway... Seth, we should talk about what we've recently been playing. Sure. Would you like to go first or would you like me to go first? I'll go first. Okay. What have you been playing recently? I've been playing Wolfenstein, The New Order. Wolfenstein came out in 2014, developed by Machine Games and released by Bethesda Softworks. Uh, It is the seventh game in the Wolfenstein series, and it's a spiritual sequel of sorts to the 2009 Wolfenstein by Raven Software. Uh, I say spiritual sequel because it's not a direct follow-up to Raven Software's 2009 Wolfenstein. It actually ignores most of that storyline. But the character of Deathhead, who is the like main villain in this game, is a villain from the last game. Isn't Raven Software the same company that made Star Trek Elite Force? Yes, it is. And I think the 2009 Wolfenstein is not a bad game. But yeah, they decided to like reboot it, uh, the series essentially, when right. uh, Machine Games became the developer and Bethesda started publishing. And this was, of course, prior to Bethesda being owned by Microsoft. Yes, this was back just when Bethesda owned everyone else. And now Microsoft owns Bethesda and everyone else. Anyway, Wolfenstein the new order is a reimagining of the wolfenstein universe in the sense that it's kind of i would call a soft reboot where it pretty much ignores all the games from the past but ignores it in a way so that it doesn't necessarily decanonize them so you can certainly pretend that previous wolfenstein games happened it's just you might have to kind of fudge the experience a bit when you encounter hitler in the second game if he's supposed to be dead the new order is also kind of a man in the high castle style game it actually takes place in an alternate universe where the nazis win the war Uh, In the game, you play as BJ Blazkowicz, who, after being hit by some shrapnel in the head back in 1946, wakes up in 1960 in a hospital and learns that the Allies officially surrendered in 1948, and he now plans to kill a bunch of Nazis. Yeah. There's really not, like, a distinct plan that he has. He's just like, oh, the Nazis won. I gotta still kill them. And he just goes and murders a bunch of Nazis. Yeah, I think he's in the wheelchair in the the start no that's the second game he ends Uh, up in hospitals in both games oh okay yeah 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 (laughs) bj has a problem where he just ends up in hospitals yeah 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 no in the beginning of this game after you do like a storming of the nazi base and get knocked out you wake up in a a hospital of people that are uh, infirmed for various medical reasons and mental reasons And then, like, the Nazis come in and they're like, we're going to wipe off this hospital, wipe it all out. And right when a Nazi is about to kill you, you take a knife, like a butter knife, and you, like, shove it into his neck. Yeah. It's also a very graphic game, in case anyone's wondering. Oh, yeah. There's some lines it won't cross. There's a a torture scene that they kind of cut away from. But it is is a very, very graphic game. Um, It does not shy away from the gore. And it doesn't shy away from the the violent imagery. But it's also a very fun game to play. Uh, I like playing as BJ Blazkowicz. I like the the fact that he's kind of like the doom guy but in the army where like the doom guy's whole shtick is that he wants to murder a bunch of demons and bj's whole shtick is that he just wants to murder a bunch of nazis uh, they have a lot in common 
In fact, I think there's like non-canon lore that says they're related, which I buy into. Uh, but that's what I've been playing recently. Oh, BJ and Duke? No, BJ and the Doom guy. Oh, and the Doom guy. I think they're yeah. all related, aren't they? All three brothers? Sure. Uh, anyway, Seth, what have you been playing? Oh, I wanted to talk more about BJ Blaskowitz. You could talk more about BJ Blaskowitz. I really enjoyed Wolfenstein The New Order. Wolfenstein The New Order was a game that I started to play and then put it down for years. Picked it up and was like, oh man, this is a really good game. Why did I stop playing this? And then beat it and was really into Wolfenstein games for a little while. I haven't gotten back to that itch, so I, I don't think I've finish the latest iteration the well so there's new colossus and then young blood young blood is the most recent one I'm, i think i'm almost done with new colossus new colossus pretty much in my opinion takes all of the kind of ridiculousness of the oh, first it goes, new it goes order weird. it gets real weird real fast i almost feel like new order can be a little adjacent to if for some levels to dishonored yeah i can see that so if new order is dishonored new colossus is like saints row the third that's true <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good comparison. BJ Blaswitz does get a laser uh, to cut through chain links. And uh, one of my first, one of my early, I wouldn't say my first screenshots. One of my early screenshots is me making vulgar pictures with the laser. Anyway, uh, so the game that I've been recently been playing is actually a game that I recently played and beat, which is another wonderful game in my beat column, which is always a good thing to get, uh, is a, a game called 2001 A Space Felony. Stylized, though, as 2001. 2000 colon one yeah that's why i said 2001 which is how 2001 the space odyssey is said no well it is said like that but in 2001 it's stylized as the number 2001 this is stylized as 2000 colon one is it i thought 2001 no 2001 space odyssey is 2001 colon a space Odyssey. oh this is uh, okay this is 2000 colon one colon a space felony it is first of all awesome i loved it it is a short short game uh it is so short there are no saves you play it in one go or else the game will probably take you about 90 minutes if you're really quick you maybe do it in an hour essentially it takes place from somebody who is in, essentially in front of a courtroom deposition. So you're in front of this guy and he's giving you're giving a courtroom deposition and you're, you're actually able to like drink coffee while you're talking to the guy. There's an action. You can actually drink the coffee and it cuts to the murder that you went to go solve because you're a detective and you're essentially walking this guy through what you came upon and there was essentially this murder like all out everyone's dead kind of situation on a ship that was called the USS Endowment and yes it looks like maybe Jeff Bezos designed it so you get aboard and it's a first person perspective and you only really have the ability to um, take a picture of things and Every time you take a picture of something that's relevant, it actually cuts to the courtroom again and the guy's explaining the evidence and then it goes back to you playing, which is a little jarring, but I really liked it. I, I was reading other people. They said they didn't really like that. It was kind of too jarring for them, but I, I really liked the switching. And then everything was, it's like hyper stylized in color. So like there'll be a body that's just like all green or all pink or all orange. And it's clearly a body, but the colors are very deliberate 
almost like artistic. And you go through and you explore this spaceship and you take pictures and you essentially have to prove or disprove whether or not the ship's onboard AI killed everybody. Because the ship's onboard AI is the only one left on the ship. So you have to kind of walk through what happened and figure out who done it and why are all these people dead. And it gives me uh, Tacoma vibes, which was also a really good game by Fulbright, which was kind of like the Gone Home people where you're trying to figure out what happened aboard a space station. Anyway, going back to 2001, A Space Felony. There's two other games by this developer. There's uh, Once Upon a Crime in the West, which is their newer game that came out after 2001, A Space Felony. And their prototype game back in 2016 called the disorient on the murder express they're all crime solving games uh, and it's done by a company called national insecurities and you can find them on itch.io well uh today we're talking about something that's similar to a space felony it's similar to a felony we're talking about kind of an interesting gaming device that some people might remember and some people might not and that device is the gizmondo seth do you have any memories of the gizmondo negative i remember seeing something about it before i knew its history and i don't remember if it was on g4 or if it was on the old website game trailers which is now defunct but uh the gizmondo is kind of an interesting device and it's one that i'm surprised seth and i haven't talked about before because of our interest in poor selling game consoles uh seth and i love when a console is overhyped and underperformed yeah so like i'm looking at like some images of it it is a uh, a portable handheld that's dark gray with a light gray border around it's like a bezel around its screen and the picture that they're using for one of the games looks like it might be rayman that they're trying to play on it rayman was one of the games slated for release on the gizmondo man um, it did not come out for the gizmondo but it was slated for release that's probably a screenshot of rayman then yeah. So to understand the Gizmondo, I think I need to take everyone back to the early 2000s, which was a wild year for gaming. Uh, not only were consoles leaping into what's called the sixth generation of game systems, but they were also experimenting with more complex games. Most games were now full 3D, and the 3D was getting better and better with each passing year. And the handheld market was stronger than ever. And this was largely due to the Nintendo Game Boy Advance. Game Boy Advance was released in 2001 it quickly rose to being a smash hit with 81.51 million units selling in its total lifetime showing that there's a market for handhelds now the game boy advance system was fairly advanced uh as its name would imply it was a step above predecessors in the game boy line it had a full color screen had a massive library of its own games that were leagues better than previous games in the game boy line and it was also fully compatible with earlier game boy games you could play game boy Game Boy Color games on the Game Boy Advance. And Nintendo had a pretty good foothold of the market because Sega had started to make its way out of the picture, and Sony wasn't really interested at the moment to explore the handheld world. Uh, they later would with their PSP, but that's a little bit further down the line. So there wasn't really any competition in Nintendo's path 
for domination. That was, of course, until a company called Nokia entered the market. Nokia released the N-Gage in 2003. Now, the N-Gage was actually not just a game system, but it was also a phone. It was a phone that could play games. Whoa. I know. This was the era before smartphones. This was 2003, so something like this was pretty incredible because earlier cell phones might be able to play games. Most of them didn't play games very well because the entire layout of a phone wasn't designed to play games. No, except maybe Snake. Except maybe Snake. The N-Gage, however, kind of shifted things a bit. The N-Gage itself looks like kind of a traditional handheld game system. However, it was also a phone. But we're not going to talk too much about the N-Gage in this episode. What's good to know about the N-Gage, though, was it had graphics that were on par with PS1-style graphics. And it it did have actually a pretty decent library of games. But we'll talk about the N-Gage some other time. The N-Gage, while very interesting, also made room for something else because they inspired another company. And that company gave us the Gizmondo. So that company was Tiger Telematics, which was a Swedish-based company and completely unrelated to Zach's favorite company, Tiger Electronics. Their logo looks slightly similar too, which is very confusing. If you look at the Tiger Gizmondo logo, it looks very similar to the Tiger Electronics logo. Yeah, which is possibly deliberate. Now, Tiger Telematics was born out of merging of a small Swedish electronics company called Eagle Eye Scandinavian and an American carpet retailer call floor decor and let me tell you there is no better combination of companies and industries to really align synergies like a electronic company and a carpet company the founder of eagle eye carl freer and the head of floor decor Michael Carander, got together as Tiger Telematics with the intention of taking on the gaming market in the UK. So let's let's just recap that again. For those of you keeping track at home, a Swedish electronics company and an American carpet company merged to tackle the gaming market in the United Kingdom, because that's a great idea. They would go on and settle in England in an office in Farnborough Airfield and quickly became familiar with a man by the name of Stefan Ar. Stefan had previously known Carl when they had met on an unrelated business trip, and Carl and Michael decided that he should come work for Tiger Telematics. And so they got working together on a game system that they were going to call the Game Track. Now, and track was spelled with a Q because that's cool. Early 2000s, everything had to be hip. Now, this system, which would eventually become the Gizmondo, ran a Samsung ARM9 processor, which clocked in at 400 megahertz. It also had an NVIDIA GoForce 3D 4500 graphics chip, which was uh, NVIDIA deciding that they wanted to get into the cell phone PDA market. And so they developed these um, chips for those devices uh the GoForce would eventually get uh discontinued and they would go on to uh now develop them under the tigra series uh it also had 1.2 megabytes of graphics ram 128 megabytes of dynamic ram and it would be operated using a windows operating system and it would be using windows ce From the get-go, the Gizmondo was actually a powerhouse of a machine, as you heard from those specs. As a comparison, the N-Gage ran an ARM 920T CPU that clocked in at 104 MHz, and the Game Boy Advance was running an ARM 7TDMI CPU that clocked in at 16.78 MHz. So, the Gizmondo was four times powerful than the N-Gage, and almost 40 times more powerful than the Game Boy. Now, I would consider the Gizmondo, with these type of specs, 
the Lamborghini of the home portable game systems. So if you had like, you know, your sedan, which I guess would be the, the Game Boy Advance, and then you had your like, you know, slightly nicer sports car, but nothing like, nothing name brand, that would be the N-Gage. And then you had the Gizmondo, first place, going super fast. We'll see if it's full of gas. <laughs> yeah. Now, not only did it have some really impressive specs, but it also featured a camera, Bluetooth functionality, GPS tracking applications, SMS, and it could play videos. So essentially almost a smartphone. Yeah, it was uh, effectively a smartphone before the era of smartphones. The machine launched in March of 2005 with a lavish launch party, which featured Busta Rhymes and Pharrell Williams as as attendees. And also to promote the release, Stefan Erickson participated in the 24 hours they man's race in a Gizmondo-sponsored Ferrari 360 Moderna GTC. From what I heard, he did not last very long in the race. There were some mechanical issues and he pulled out very early. <laughs> the system itself would retail for $400 and there was a lower priced model also available for $229. And we'll talk about why there was a lower priced model when we get into some other information about the system. In any case, you might be wondering to yourself, how could a small company like Tiger Telematics, a company founded by a merger between Floor Decor and Eagle Eye Scandinavian, possibly afford this type of system? How could they even conceive making the system get to market and actually get it to market? It would surely cost a fortune the way they did it was through advertising but not the advertising you're thinking of the gizmondo would go on to have what was called smart ads and ad which historically is spelled with ad when you're talking about advertising because that's how you start spelling advertisement that's not what the gizmondo had the gizmondo had smart ads with two d's so it looked like smart edition so reportedly they spelt it with two d's because it would be easy for them to trademark the typo they should have said smart ads and spelled it adz now smart ads was a system that was designed to display ads if you owned the lower price version the gizmondo we alluded to earlier like if you bought a Kindle Fire and you didn't want to pay for no ads. Now, for those who owned the lower price model, ads would appear on your home screen at random intervals, like the Kindle Fire. The maximum number of ads that a user saw in a day would be three. Unlike the Kindle Fire, the maximum ad for that is a lot. <laughs> These advertisements were downloaded through the device's GPRS data connection and would actually be targeted based on data that you input into the system, like Kindle Fire. What amazes me, though, is we don't really think about targeted advertisement until much later yeah. in this time period. This is 2005, and the system was in development since 2003. And I know targeted advertisement has been around forever, but this type of targeted advertisement, this data collection, seems like something that's much more modern um, when you think about it. Just something I thought was interesting yeah no it is it is pretty interesting and they designed this the cheaper unit to have this smart ads program into it to subsidize the cost of the more expensive unit and also to subsidize the cost of the cheaper unit right but despite both models of the machine selling the smart ads were never implemented because here's the thing about advertising you need advertisers well so here's the thing apparently the technology and stuff was incorporated and that makes me wonder if they had advertisers lined up and they all pulled out. I don't think anyone would have bought this. If I was an advertiser, I wouldn't have to spent honest, money on nobody it. Nobody did. <laughs> right. So I'm guessing what I'm thinking has happened is that they built this without consulting any advertisers or any prospective advertisers. And we're like, we can just do this. And then they went to go to the advertisers and we're like, 
hey, excuse me, random advertiser, I don't know, Procter & Gamble, would you want to buy some ad space on our Gizmondo device? And Procter & Gamble said no. And that conversation probably happened across the board with the suppliers. Imagine being deep in game and then a Procter & Gamble ad just covering your home screen. Gotta get some Tide. Now, the smart ads never implemented, and those who bought the lower-priced model never saw them either. So there was, essentially, there was two versions of the console available. There was a $400 one and a $229 one and both were identical machines so if you wanted to save yourself 140 bucks just get the cheaper <laughs> one and don't worry about the ads now in terms of retail the gizmondo was released in the uk sweden and the u.s uh, in the u.s it was primarily available via kiosks at various malls oh do you know what's also available at kiosks in u.s malls what sketchy stuff <laughs> I bought a bootleg video game system from a mall back in the 2000s at a kiosk. You could buy bootleg video game systems. You could buy something to do with your nails or eyebrows. Oh, and you can also buy those little metal shape things and uh, now cell phone cases. The kiosk at the mall is the lawless part of the mall. And they chase you down to use oh, their they're kiosk. they're so aggressive. They're so aggressive. It's like the guy from Foot Locker's chasing me down. In any case, in total, eight games were released released for the system when it launched in the US. 14 games were planned, but eight were released. In the UK, only one game was available, Trailblazer. Wait, can we go back to the mission statement? Was this carpet company and Swedish electronic company looking <laughs> to take over the UK game market? Which is why they released one game in the UK and eight in the United States. Some games included uh, various sports titles. Um, one that was also released on the Engage called Hockey Rage 2004 which sounds like a great game. Uh, there was also a port of the popular snowboarding game, SSX3, which was available, I believe, on the GameCube and PS2 as well. And uh, there was also an unfortunately named puzzle game called Sticky Balls. Some games that were canceled for the Gizmondo included Age of Empires, Conflict Vietnam, Tomb Raider, and Halo Combat Evolved. Imagine Halo Combat Evolved coming out on the Gizmondo. The killer app for Microsoft at this time, coming out on a system like the Gizmondo. Surely, though, with these specs, with sticky balls, this system had to be doing great, right, Seth? Well... Uh, so the game was released in 2005 and sales were terrible. For a number of reasons that sales were terrible, one of the major issues was there was no advertising for it, like for the Gizmondo, let alone the advertisers that were to be on the Gizmondo. There were no advertisers telling people about the Gizmondo. There were some ads that were featured in Nintendo Power, but that's Nintendo Power, which is selling the Gizmondos probably not their first priority, nor is it the first priority of those who are reading Nintendo Power. You probably weren't looking to get a Gizmondo if you were an avid reader of Nintendo Power, because you probably had a Game Boy, and possibly a Game Boy Advance. Sales would be under 25,000 units in total, and it was discontinued in February of 2006, so it did not even spend a full year in market. Another issue that the Gizmondo faced was a complete lack of retail presence. In the UK, the system was available in a flagship store run by the company located in London. You could go into a Gizmondo store and buy Gizmondos and the one game because it was the UK release. So you could buy Trailblazer. So there was, I just imagine a shelf full of Trailblazer oh, so and a shelf full of Gizmondos and they're the same Gizmondos but they're just two different price points. <laughs> 
uh, it was also in uh, some retailers in the UK, uh, like the retailer Argos. In the US, however, the only place to buy it was the kiosks in the mall, which they did see probably in the early 2000s. You would be seeing some foot traffic, but it's a kiosk in the mall. Yeah, every kiosk in the mall sees foot traffic. There's no legitimacy to a kiosk in a mall. It's not like it's a game store. Like if you if it was in like I software etc. or electronic boutique EB games or any of the even like Funko Land or like one of the video game rental stores, if it was sold there, that would have been more legitimacy than a mall kiosk. Just as you're listening to this episode. Think about the last time that you bought something from a mall kiosk. Especially something like like an electronic. No. That, just think, of, just no. Just think about the last time you bought something from a mall kiosk. And if you go, well, actually, I bought my cell phone case from a mall kiosk just the other day, Seth. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> now, they have to design, develop, produce, and distribute a product and that costs money and the company didn't really have it and they actually took on a massive amount of debt it's estimated that they went into upwards of 300 million dollars in debt because of the release of the gizmondo now it also didn't help things that stefan erickson who was the director of gizmondo europe had quite the reputation uh, he was heavily connected to the Uppsala mafia in sweden and had been working with them and involved in various high-profile crimes since the 1990s he had a reputation as a playboy and was often seen driving a mercedes sl with a license plate that referenced the cuban slang term for cocaine yayo that al pacino uses in scarface he also operated as a debt collector and not the kind of debt collector that like uh, runs a legitimate business. He is the kind of debt collector that one time broke into someone's house, beat a man and threatened him with a knife and a gun. That's also known as a racketeer. Prior to getting in his time at Gizmondo, he also got his time in prison. He was sentenced to 10 years for fraud and counterfeiting, though he ended up only serving five of those. In 2006, he also brought the company's name into spotlight again when he crashed a Ferrari Enzo valued at around $2 million. And I read the Ferrari Enzo was actually owned by the Bank of Scotland because it was leased. And he, he crashed this Ferrari Enzo going over 162 miles per hour into a telephone pole with a crash that was so violent it ripped the car in half erickson survived he actually walked away from the crash with just a slight cut on his lip after the accident erickson presented investigators with a business card where he claimed to be a deputy commissioner for san gabriel valley transit authority a quasi-governmental corporation that operated as a bus transit provider in la seniors. Erickson's home in Bel Air was raided in April 2006, where various drugs and a handgun were seized. The San Gabriel Valley Transit Authority was also raided, where its owner was arrested and various badges and weapons were confiscated including a vehicle designed to be an unmarked police vehicle. Erickson eventually would plead guilty on two counts of embezzlement and one count of illegal gun possession. He served two more years in prison and then was deported to Sweden, where he would serve an additional 18 months in prison for extortion and aggravated assault, which he got because he poured gasoline on somebody he needed to extort. <laughs> what I just, what I love is if you Google Stefan Erickson, Google has like those little pop-ups of like, you know, like if, 
gives you a little factual information about them. If you're like looking up, like people also search for, and it shows like a little factoid on them. And it has Stefan Eriksson, Swedish video game developer. Nothing more, nothing less. But if you obviously read into him more, you'll find out that he was a little bit more than a Swedish video game developer. In fact, I feel like being a Swedish video game developer was a side thing that he did. And then he was primarily a Swedish mobster. So that's Stefan. Uh, back with Gizmondo, or rather the smoldering remains of Gizmondo, Carl uh, Freer would actually tell a Swedish newspaper in 2007 that he was planning to release a new Gizmondo machine with a promised 35 game lineup that he said he had already secured. He planned to launch this machine in 2008. That was also the same year as the 2008 financial crash. So the machine was put on hold forever. Effectively, Tiger Telematics and Gizmondo as a brand would cease to exist. It had already been bankrupt, and people who worked there had already resigned. By the time Carl Freer was planning to do anything with it, there was no Gizmondo. It was Carl Freer in a pipe dream that he had. I mean, I guess there's always still opportunity for Gizmondo 2 to come out sometime in the future, but, you know, it probably would just be a smartphone. So that's the Gizmondo, a uh, fascinating piece of gaming hardware that exists and is uh, actually worth a substantial amount of money if you find one in the wild. So How much are they going for today? got on the old price charting let's find out let's look up price charting uh, the Gizmondo system, loose, goes for about $147. A complete would go for about $325, and a new in-box would be just under $700. All of the games range from about the lowest being a game called Toy Golf. It is priced at about $27 loose, and the highest is uh, Point of Destruction, priced at $86 loose. So most games will, will set you back $20 to $30 to $40, depending on uh, what you find. Good luck finding one, though. I don't think they're incredibly easy to stumble upon in the wild. Anyway, so that was the Gizmondo episode. We're going to go on to our next segment. And I say that in a way that makes it seem like we are going to the Byway Pass, but we have an announcement to make, and that's that the Byway Pass has cashed out its PTO and will be going on summer vacation. Mm, yes. I'm surprised that we gave a segment and a ethereal existence of a creature pto but we did apparently yeah we, we gotta waste our money somehow while the byway passes on summer vacation we hired a new guy for the segment and it will be called the retro rewind and that's a t- like that's a tbd name as well we who knows what we'll eventually call this i like retro rewind though i think it's a fun name for a premise as it were so this segment now is going to be where zach and i will recommend a, a retro game to play uh prior to the episode recording and the other brother must play the game, and then we'll talk about our experiences with the game and whether or not the game has held up to today's standards. So retro, for the sake of argument, for us, will be anything that's pre-2010 is kind of like where my ballpark is right now. So like if it's if it's a game that came out before 2010, we'll consider it part of the Retro Rewind candidacy. However, to be fair for anything that's out there that's kind of like a long game, the games will probably be more pick-up-and-play style or relatively shorter experiences so that it's not like Zach's like, oh, I recommend you play this extremely long RPG that really gets good 
10 hours in because realistically I won't be able to experience I guess the best part of the game within the the time frame that we set each other so this week Zach reached out to me and he gave me my game and that game was Dungeons and Dragons Tower of Doom. I was mildly aware of this game's existence, but I hadn't really done any significant playthrough of the game. It actually is a really good game, and I think it would even hold up to today if you are interested in a more uh, animated, side-scrolling beat-em-up game that you've probably seen a million of in arcade cabinets. Think a la X-Men, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, uh, even Golden Axe is probably the best game to reference Dungeons and Dragons Tower of Doom was released in 1994 for the arcade and can play up to four players cooperatively. I played alone because I don't have three other people that were ready to play this game with me. I actually ended up playing through RetroArch. I had a little bit of difficulty, but it ended up working once I put it on a system that could handle it since it's a bit more of an intense arcade game. Um, Intense being power hungry versus intense being like this game so intense. The game has four playable characters in it, a fighter, an elf, a cleric, and a dwarf. I, of course, played the dwarf because that's my thing. And there's a little fun fact. This, this is a, a licensed D&D game. And at the time of the game's release in 1994, the races and classes mixed mingling would be appropriate because that would be what was going on in Dungeons and Dragons. So you would have elves and dwarves as their own class as well as being a race. So these would be four different classes. Now, the game plays similar to Golden Axe, uh, except there's a couple of factors that are different in Dungeons & Dragons that aren't in Golden Axe. And I really liked these additional factors. First, it has a choose-your-own-adventure quality, which I don't think I've seen in any other beat-em-up games, where you actually get to pick the stages that you go to. So after you beat the first stage, these villagers come out and they're like, hey, we need help. And you can either like hunt the monsters down in the forests where you can go defend some fort and and then the next section you have to either go to the town or like go up the mountains and within the stage itself you could pick where you were going to go because you could go up like there might be a passageway in the background that you could walk up to and that actually was a path into the fort Uh, or maybe go down some stairs or go through the door so it's kind of cool that you get a lot of freedom in regards to how you approach the game there are also pickups along the way that you get to hold on to such as uh, throwable weapons and magic items you also earn currency as well as silver pieces and additionally you could even go to a store after each mission and you can buy some of the pickups so you could if you need oil or daggers or a throwing axe or whatever you could buy those at the store now there were a couple of ports zach actually played there's a port on steam that's uh dungeon and dragons chronicles of mysteria uh which is a combination of tower of doom and shadows of mysteria which is the sequel to tower of doom and shadows of mysteria would add additional classes but continue on with the beat-em-up kind of format that collection was released in 2013 there was also a port of the two arcade cabinets on the sega saturn though it capped out at two players that's cool yeah i love both tower of doom and shadow of mysteria i actually first played chronicles of mysteria on a ps3 and i played it with a friend of mine and we beat both games in one night we just had a blast 
fast. Like we would not stop playing. And then uh, I picked it up on Steam because I was like, I got to play this game again. It combines a lot of things I love, which are RPG elements with a beat em up. Uh, so I'm glad Seth enjoyed it. Uh, the game Seth gave me was Mega Turrican. Now, despite the fact I am a huge Sega Genesis fan, I actually never played Mega Turrican. Uh, I don't think we ever rented it. And to be honest, I don't remember ever seeing it when I was at like stores as a kid. Uh, but it, it's really a blast of a game. A pun definitely intended. It is a blast. Uh, it's kind of like a blend of Contra with this like almost robotic aesthetic to it that I think is kind of really cool. The game was released in 1993 by Data East and developed by Factor 5, who would actually later go on to make games like Rogue Squadron. And uh, in the game, you play as a kick-ass dude named Bren McGuire, who is on a mission to destroy something called The Machine, uh, which that's all you need to know about this game. It's like pure 90s action schlock, and I love it. In the game, you have a grappling hook, which you can use to like latch onto walls and pull yourself closer. It can kind of help you grapple uh, around various corners. And you also have a gun, which will frequently get updated because you'll pick up upgrades all the time. There's like a laser upgrade. There's a multi-shot upgrade. There's a, like a ricochet upgrade where the bullets bounce off the wall. Uh, all different upgrades. And every time you collect an upgrade, a voice will tell you which upgrade you've picked up. And it actually uses really clear voice samples. Yeah, I liked Mega Turrican. I didn't get very far. I actually got a game over pretty quickly. But it's tough. It is very tough, uh, but I did really enjoy it. Um, and I'll have to play it again. And I'll also probably check out the other Turrican games uh, because there was a few others released for the Sega. This is actually the third, I believe, on the Sega, but fourth total. Did you play it on Sega or did you I play did. it? Oh, I played you did. It. I played it on my Sega Genesis, which is currently hooked up to a 1980s Sony Trinitron in my living room. And I uh, I don't have a physical copy of, of the game, so I did have to put it onto my flash cart that I have, my EverDrive. You know, played it on real hardware, got to enjoy the fun, which I think helped me appreciate it more. I think the game has an aesthetic that really goes well with that old tube TV sitting in my living room. Well, that is uh, going to be it for today's episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. If you want to reach out to the brothers, you can email us at classicgamingbrothers at gmail.com. Feel free to let us know what you thought of this episode. You can also follow us on our various social media channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, and Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitch are Classic Gaming Brothers. Twitter is CG Brothers Pod. Be sure to like, subscribe, rate us, do all those things that you'd want to do to let us know that you love this podcast. Also, if you want to reach out to us to let us know what you bought at the sketch kiosks in the mall be sure to do so and maybe you'll get a free video game which will probably be worth more than whatever you bought at that sketchy kiosk at the mall unless what you bought was a gizmondo in any case that's all that i have to add um seth do you have anything that you want to let our listeners know don't play games like my brother and don't play games like my brother i've been seth and i've been zach and we've been the classic gaming brothers that's right, right.